Well, Thanksgiving is far, far in the past now, right? It is well behind us, and Christmas is upon us. And while Christmas in our country, as we all know, as we all know is, is very much these days about uh, toys and Santa Claus and reindeer and candy canes, um, still, even, even though that is uh, the main uh, coding on our Christmas culturally, still, underneath it all, you can't escape the fact that it's all about Jesus. Uh, Christmas is, at its heart, the time when we celebrate the Incarnation. Now, I love that word, Incarnation. It's going to be one of our theme words for the next four weeks as we go through this series on Advent. Uh, I love the word Incarnation because it's so descriptive. It comes from two Latin words that you actually know already. Um, in, of course, you know, in means in. And uh, carne, where we get like carnivore, right? It's meat or flesh. So incarnation is to be infleshed. It's a very descriptive word, and, and it literally means to become embodied. And this is what we celebrate, this amazing event, this moment in time when God, the one who created the universe, the one who exists outside of space and time and sustains everything by his incomparable power, he became a human, just like you, just like me, and was born to a virgin in a stable because there was no room at the end. This is really cool. It's really cool, and it's, it's worth us celebrating. It's right for us to celebrate this every Christmas, to sing songs about the Incarnation, to tell each other the stories over and over again, um, to put out any number of nativity scenes that paint the picture of this amazing event when God became flesh. It's right for us to celebrate the Incarnation. But my question for us this month is, what if we didn't just celebrate the Incarnation? What if in addition to celebrating the Incarnation, we were also called to imitate the Incarnation? Not just to go out and to wish people Merry Christmas, but somehow to follow in the footsteps of what Jesus did that first Christmas. That may sound a little weird, um, imitating the Incarnation, but that's exactly the point of the passage that we're going to look at for the next four weeks as we lead up to Christmas. Um, Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is in the New Testament. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's page 980. If you're not using those, just use your table of contents so you can find it. It's towards the back of the Bible, Philippians, as uh, chapter 2. It's a passage that you probably don't usually turn to on Christmas. It's not the story of Christ's birth that we're all familiar with from Luke chapter 2, for example. Uh, But here in Philippians 2, we get one of the most theologically complete descriptions of the incarnation that exists anywhere in the Bible. And so it's very appropriate for this time of year. What we're going to see as we look at it together is that it tells us not just what happened when Jesus was incarnate, but it actually commands us to imitate him. We're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 today and then for the next three weeks. And one final note, I'm going to read this now, but um, in case you're following along with me in the same translation, the ESV, when I get to verse 5, I'm going to read what they have as a translation in the footnote, because I think it's clearer and it's more in line with other versions. So if that doesn't mean anything to you, just ignore what I just said, but in case you're curious, that's what's going on. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. We're going to be in this passage until Christmas, so today I just want to answer three questions. There are three questions about the incarnation. Uh, The first is, what are we supposed to imitate? The second is, why should we imitate it? And then third, how do we imitate? Just laying the groundwork today. So first, what are we supposed to imitate? Okay, we need a little background on Philippians. All right, Philippians is a letter that was written to a church in Greece that Paul had started. And it's actually a pretty healthy church. As you survey the various letters that Paul writes, they seem to have it pretty well together. But even so, in a healthy church, there's still conflict. In this church, if you flip to page, page, uh, chapter 4, you actually see Paul names the people who are having a little bit of conflict here, two women named Iodia and Syntyche. And so there's a little fight going on, a little skirmish, like happens in many churches. And so Paul's writing to them, especially in this passage, and saying, I want you guys to get along. You hear him saying that in the first four verses here. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's saying, if you guys are really Christians and any of this means anything, then make my joy complete by being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You hear what he's saying? He's saying to these folks, get along, right? Have some unity in the church. But then ultimately, he, he tells them not just this good advice like have unity, then he grounds it in the example of Christ. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us the example of Christ in verses 6 through 11. He, he runs through very quickly and amazingly the incarnation, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and then his resurrection and glorification. There's tremendous doctrinal content in these few verses, verses 6 through 11. Uh, literally, books have been written on these verses. Right, this, is, this tells us so much about the incarnation of Jesus and, and who he is, the person of Christ, what he accomplished. But the point, the point of these verses is not so that we can ace our theology exams. Right? These verses weren't given so that we could just nail down exactly what the deity of Christ is and, and, and what he accomplished. And if someone asks us a question, we can nail it down. We can say, hey, I can point to the verses that tell you these truths. That's not why it's here. It's here to show us the example. To say, Jesus acted like this, now we should act like it too. Jesus did this. Here's what his incarnation was really like. Go and do likewise. But when we think about it, that's a little weird, a little challenging. This question actually came up last week in in adult Sunday schools. We were talking about imitating Christ and saying, can we really imitate Christ? 
I mean, to what degree can we imitate Christ? Can we really be like him? I mean, he's Jesus, right? And when we talk about the incarnation, it starts to make even less sense. How can we imitate the incarnation? We're not God. We, we, we can't become, we're already flesh, so how can we incarnate? We're already there. And when he says imitate the incarnation, I don't think he's saying, you know, have a Christmas pageant and dress up like baby Jesus and lay in the manger and, and you know, there you've done it. That's ridiculous. So what's he saying? When we imitate Christ, what are we supposed to do? Well, the answer is in verse 5. He says, have this mind among you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He's saying we don't imitate the actions of Christ. We have to imitate his attitude. In fact, that's the word that's used in the NIV, which is how I memorized this years ago. The NIV says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Others say mind or mindset. The thing we're called to imitate about the incarnation is not becoming in flesh. We can't do that. But we're called to imitate the mindset of Jesus, his way of thinking. That makes more sense, right? That makes a lot more sense. Uh, we, we can do that. Um, you know, if somebody tells me, uh, you know, I want you to imitate LeBron James, I, I can't do that. There are things that he can do with the basketball that I can never do. In fact, I just saw some high schoolers a couple days ago that can do things with the basketball I can never do. Okay, I can't imitate that. I can't do that. But if someone says, I want you to imitate his attitude, as in the way that he works, the way that he you know, uh, conducts himself, you know, his attitude, I could imitate that. I can imitate anybody's attitude. That's not dependent on my skill set or my physical attributes. And so it's really encouraging, I think, that Paul says here, as we imitate the incarnation, we're not called to do exactly what Jesus did. That's a one-off, unrepeatable thing. But we're called to imitate his attitude. What was it in his mindset, in his heart even, that motivated him to act the way he did, becoming human for our sake? That's what we're supposed to do. Now that leads to the follow-up question, um, well, what is his mindset? If we're supposed to imitate his attitude and his mindset, well, what is it? And and so again, let's look at these verses 6 through 11. He says, he was in the form of God. And did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'll just stop there. So what is that? What how would we define that mindset? This mindset of Jesus that says, I'm not going to just hold on to being God. I'm going to leave that behind. I'm going to become a human, and I'm going to be a humble human, serving and dying, and even dying the most humiliating death that's possible. What's, what's, what's that attitude? I think in a word, we could call it love. I mean, it's a pretty descriptive word. This attitude is of love. In fact, if you look at verses 3 and 4, Paul gives us you know, other words for it says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. I think that's actually a pretty good definition of love. Putting others' interests above your own. Considering their interests more significant than your own. I think that's a good definition of love. When my kids come to me at 3 a.m., and they ask for a glass of water, 
Love is me putting their interest in hydration above my interest in warm blankets and sleep. Right? That's love, putting their interest above my own. Or when your friend needs help moving, love is putting their interest of getting everything moved in without breaking or getting scratched above your interest of getting it done as quickly as possible. Right? Love is putting another's interest above your own. It's counting them more significant than yourself. And that's the mind of Christ. And you see how he models that for us in the incarnation. He didn't think being God with all the comforts and privileges of God was something to hold on to, but he let go of that and he became one of us. Not just any old human, but a lowly, poor, humble human who ultimately died on a cross. And what an extreme journey. How does that happen? It sounds like a tragic accident. God dying on a cross, and yet he did it on purpose. Because he loved us. Because he knew it was in our best interest for him to die in our place, that we might be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. And so he put our interests above his own. He considered our interests more significant than his own. And he gave up everything for us. He loved us. All right, that's what I'm talking about today and for the next three weeks when we talk about imitating the incarnation. Not, not trying to dress up like baby Jesus or not trying to somehow become God in flesh. I'm talking about imitating his attitude. Imitating this mindset of love, seeking to put others' interests above our own. What if this Christmas we didn't just celebrate the incarnation, but we tried to imitate it by living out a lifestyle of sacrificial love for others? Okay. That's what we're supposed to imitate. But there's still the question of why. Why would we do that? It sounds nice, right? It definitely sounds nice to imitate the incarnation. Love, great, that, that, that preaches. Uh, but, but why? Why would we do this? You know, at the end of the day, when it's 3 a.m. and my kid wants water, I don't really want to get up and give it to them. Love is hard. Putting others' interests above our own is difficult. So why in the world would we do that? I got two parts to this answer. The first one sounds kind of harsh, but bear with me. Uh, the first part of the answer is because God said so. There's my parent answer for you. Because God said so. And I want to minimize that. Like, this is a command. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's a command. And not an isolated command. This is a major command throughout Scripture. Jesus wants us to imitate him in the way that he loves. Let me give you four other Scriptures to show you that this is not isolated. John 13 Verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Pretty clear? I've given you an example. As I have loved, you should love. 1 Peter 2.21 for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He's an example. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
saying this is how we know what love is. Jesus dying for us teaches us what love is, and he did this that we might also lay down our lives for one another. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As Christ loved us, we walk in love. Okay, and there's millions more, right? This is, this is the Christian ethic. This is how we're supposed to live. As Christ loved us, then we follow that example. We imitate the incarnation in loving other people. We can't avoid it. God said so, so we have to do it. Okay, but, of course, I'm a parent. I understand that saying I said so sounds like a cop-out. That's the reason that I give when I have no other reason. Because I said so. Um, don't tell my kids. Are they here? No. I always have a reason. Uh, no, it sounds arbitrary, um, but God's not like that. He's not like me. He's a better parent than I am. He's a better parent than you are. When God gives us commands, he's always got good reasons. He always has good reasons. Uh, we might not understand them right away, just like a kid might not understand why you say don't stick a fork in the light socket. Okay, why? That sounds like fun. Okay, but he has good reasons, and he's got great reasons for telling us to do this. See, God's commands for our life, they're never arbitrary. They're never just harsh for the sake of being harsh. They're a lot like the, the bars that come down at railroad crossings. I really love those bars that come down at railroad crossings because they keep me from getting hit by a train. It's really helpful. I'm grateful for the flashing lights and the barricades that keep me from getting hit by a train. God's commands are like that. They come down our life and they say, hey, don't do that or do this. Because if you go the wrong way, if you do the wrong thing, you're going to get hit by a train. And God says, I need you to love. You're supposed to love. That's how life works. It's good. So we, we want to obey this command, yes, because God says so, but also because it is actually the good life. It's the good life. Loving people, imitating the incarnation, it's the way we're made to live. Whether you're aware of it or not, there's two major competing ways to live that are out there. There's the way of selfishness and the way of love. The way of love is the way of Jesus, right? It's this way of self-sacrifice, of putting others' interests above your own, and it is the sentimental favorite. Everybody loves that one, right? On paper. Especially after you watch It's a Wonderful Life. You watch that movie and you think, oh, I just want to live my life sacrificing for others. You know, that's the way it goes. I would much rather uh, serve people my whole life without recognition than have a bunch of money like that filthy guy. What's his name? And, uh, Mr. Potter, right? And uh, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, it's better, to, uh, it's better to go the way of Jesus. We all root for that. You know, we say, yes, absolutely, that's what we do. But, but actually, the dominant definition of the good life most of the time is the way of selfishness. And though we don't like to admit it, many of us act as if we believe that the good life really is this way of selfishness. The way that says, um, all my needs get met, my opinions matter the most, everyone should be interested in me. Uh, now, if you don't believe me, if you don't think that's kind of your definition of the ideal life, I challenge you to think about the perfect day. Like in your mind, what would the perfect day be? Maybe think about your ideal Father's Day, your ideal Mother's Day. What is your perfect day? Isn't it the day when everybody does what you want? Isn't the perfect day when you get everything that you desire? When no one contradicts you, when no one bothers you, when no one makes demands on you? When you do what you want, you go where you want, you watch what you want, you eat what you want? Okay, we reveal our inner nature when we think about that. What is my perfect day? My perfect day is when I get what I want. It's the way of selfishness. 
And ironically, this way gets a lot of play during Christmas time too, especially when we start to make up our Christmas lists. I start to think Christmas is about me getting what I want. In Mark chapter 10, you can flip there if you want, Jesus starkly lays out these two different ways. He's walking with his disciples, and uh, James and John decide that they're going to get what they want. They know that Jesus is about to become king. At least they think they understand what that means. And so they say, now is the time for us to strike while the iron is hot. And so James and John come up to Jesus, and they ask him, Lord, now that you're about to become king, can we sit at your right hand and your left? Can we be the two top dogs in your kingdom? This is Mark chapter 10. In verse 41, it says, When the ten heard it, when the other disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. But of course, they're not indignant because they're being so selfish. They're indignant because they didn't think of it first. (laughs) Say, dang it, we missed out. I should have called shotgun. What was I thinking? (laughs) And so James and John are angling for the first two spots and the other ten are mad that they missed the opportunity. And, and so far, nothing's really unusual. This is how the world works. If you want something, you take it. You look out for yourself. You try to get to the top. Because it's better to have other people looking out for your interests, right? It's better to be the boss than the secretary. It's better to be the star athlete than the water boy. It's better to be the lead guitarist than the roadie. It's better to be on top. Nobody wants to be a servant. Nobody wants to look out for the interests of other people except Jesus. Read what Jesus says in Mark 10, 42. So Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus flips everything upside down. He says, This is the good life. The way up is down. This is the good life. This is how life really works. Jesus is giving us an insight here that is incredibly valuable. He says, in our selfish hearts, we think the way up is up. The way to the good life is by getting on top so that other people have to look out for us. But he says, the good life, the way it really works, if you want to go up, you go down. If you want the good life, you look out for the interests of others. I'm sure you've all seen this work in everyday life. And you, For me, the place I have most seen this truth borne out is in my marriage. You know, and I'm sure those of you who have been married longer than me could attest that this is true as well. The more we look to our own interests and selfishly fight for our own desires, the more our marriage does not work. The more we fight, the more joyless it is, the less it, it flourishes. But the more we look to the interest of the other, putting our own interests below the interests of the other, caring for the other one, the more we do that, the more our marriage actually flourishes and grows, and the more joy it has, and the better it functions. Okay? Anybody married more than 13 years? Give me an amen on that one. Amen. Okay, good. Yes, not me. It's true, right? And it's a, that's a little, uh, a little 
experiment, little laboratory that shows you as it does in this close interpersonal relationship, so it works in the rest of life as well. The way up is down. It, it sounds backwards to us in our sinful nature, but Jesus is always flipping things. He says stuff like, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life will save it. The last will be first and the first last. Whoever would be great must become a servant. The way up is down. See, the incarnation of Jesus is the greatest example of this inversion that the world has ever seen or will ever see. God the Son dies on a cross. But if you look in Philippians 2, that's not where it ends, right? Jesus goes from the highest heights to the lowest low, but right after that, in verse 9, Philippians 2, 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is how it works. This is how God has designed the world. If we're going to flourish in our relationships, in our life, we need to love. We need to put others above ourselves. And in the end, there's the reward, there's glory. When the Son of Man came, he didn't come just to die for us, he came to leave an example for us to follow. And that's why God commands us to do it, because it's good. All right, so where are we? We've seen what to imitate. We imitate the incarnation, the way of love, putting others' needs and their interests above our own. We do it because God says it, and God says it because it's good. So let's end today practically by addressing this question. How? How do we do it? What, what does this really look like? Especially at Christmas time. Okay, I'm going to make these applications especially tailored for this time of year. There's millions of ways we do this all the year, but especially now at Christmas, how can we do this? The last thing we want to do is be hypocrites. Right? None of us wants to be hypocrites. We don't want to celebrate the incarnation while denying it with our lifestyle. We want to celebrate the incarnation and imitate it. So how do we do that? I think at Christmas, here's the two big areas that came to mind that are ripe for application. One is the area of gifts and gift giving, and the other is the area of family. All right, so let's think about these things. Gifts, first of all, gifts. On the one hand, nothing is more natural at Christmas time than giving gifts. As Jesus gave himself for us, so we give to one another of an overflow of love. It's a beautiful thing. It's a great picture of the incarnation. Gift giving can be a tremendous expression of this very thing. It's a way we can imitate the incarnation by giving gifts. But on the other hand, this practice of giving gifts in our culture has been so co-opted by another narrative that it can become completely counter to the incarnation. And I know you're aware of this because you live in the same culture I do, and you know we fight this battle every year, every Christmas season. But in our culture, it's so very easy for gift-giving to not become demonstrations of love to one another, but excuses for getting what we want and even obligations to buy one another the things that we want. It becomes a, I don't know, a celebration of selfishness. Now, I'm not saying that every one of us instantly becomes selfish monsters every time Christmas rolls around. I'm just pointing out the obvious, that 
This is a dominant theme at Christmas time. Selfishness is in the air. I mean, the, the folks that are trying to sell you things on Black Friday through December 24th are not interested in your motivation. They're not concerned whether you're buying gifts out of love for other people or selfishness. And quite honestly, selfishness is a stronger emotion. And so they likely prey on that more. They just want you to buy things. So the temptation is there. This narrative is there that Christmas is about the time of getting what you want. You've waited all year. You've worked so hard. Shouldn't you get something for yourself too? What's on your list? So if we don't pay attention to this, we can end up celebrating the incarnation while denying it with the way we practice. I want to point out one way we do this. It's an obvious one that hit me, and I, honestly, I have not worked through yet what the implications are for my family, but I just want to throw it out here for you too. Think about the way that we talk to our kids about Christmas. What is often the first thing we say to them around Christmas time? What do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? Innocent question, right? Okay, it, it's in, it is innocent. It seems harmless, but it also has a message. What's the message that we send when the main thing we ask at Christmas time is, what do you want for Christmas? The obvious thing, the main message we ask, we're sending is that Christmas is about you getting things. We've turned the incarnation on its head. We say Christmas is about you receiving, about you getting what you want. Wouldn't it be a better question to say, what do you want to give this Christmas? What do you want to give this Christmas? I mean, if we're serious about imitating the incarnation, we should recognize we've already received everything that we need. Jesus has given us that. And now what he's calling us to do is to go, to imitate the incarnation by giving to others. So what if we flip the question? Instead of asking, what do you want for Christmas? Saying, what do you want to give this Christmas? Now, hear me. I'm not saying it's wrong to ask kids what they want. But what I'm saying is we need to examine what we do. Examine everything we do. Everything we do sends a message. Is that message reinforcing the incarnation or denying the incarnation? Are we, are we sending a message that celebrates the love and the sacrifice of Jesus and even imitates it? Or are we sending a message that, that, that funnels selfishness and encourages us to deny the incarnation? So my encouragement, and that question thing, it's an idea, okay? Take it, run with it if you want to. My main concern is that we examine what we're doing. Examine the messages that we send and all that we do, how we celebrate, how we shop, how we give gifts. What are the actions that we do at Christmas time to celebrate the incarnation denying it with our lifestyle? Or are we reinforcing the message of love? Let's, let's make Christmas about love. So there's some thoughts about gifts. Now, what about family? This affects the way we interact with family too. Christmas, like all holidays, like Thanksgiving we just had, is a great opportunity to be with family. And ideally, family get-togethers would be wonderful. Right? They'd always be fun. We'd get along with everybody. It'd be a great time. Uh, but the truth is, for many, we don't like all our family members. That's why we only get together once or twice a year. Uh, we can rub each other the wrong way. Uh, we just... So we can do Christmas grudgingly then, right? We'll get together with family, but we won't like it, and we'll let you know that we don't like it. You know, you, you may not like your in-laws. I do, but you may not like them. I'm not just saying that because they're here today, but that, I do. But you may not like your in-laws, okay? And, and you, you may, so, but you still go to Christmas with them. You still hang out, but you do it grudgingly. Everybody knows you don't like it. Or maybe you've got a sibling. You've just got lots of bad blood. 
And so you, you celebrate, you're in the same room together, but there's ice between the two of you. Okay, what I want us to see is that that's just as much of a failure to imitate the incarnation as making Christmas all about gifts. Okay, that, that's just as big of a failure to, to not love our family members. Again, we get so much help from the example of Jesus. You think about what he did, coming from heaven to take on flesh and live among us. Do you think he was looking forward to that? Do you think that was a family get-together he was really looking forward to? Leaving the perfect fellowship of the Father and the Spirit and coming to earth? John 1.11 tells us how it went. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus showed up for family dinner, and they killed him. Yeah, that's, that's not the family dinner he was looking forward to. That's not, I mean, he, he wasn't, this wasn't excited. It's not like, oh, great, I can be with my family. He, he came to earth and we rejected him. So it wasn't fun, but he did it anyway. He showed us the way of love. He chose to put our interests above his own, and we can do the same with family at Christmas. We can choose to go and to not be grumpy or selfish, but to go with the mindset of valuing others above ourselves, putting their interests first. That's what imitating the incarnation could look like with family. It could look like uh, being nice to Uncle Frank and asking about his kids even though he annoys you. You know, you want to just avoid him all Christmas, but you actually go and engage in conversation. That's imitating the incarnation. Uh, it could look like re-engaging with that family member who hurt you. Instead of holding the grudge, you forgive and you wade into that mess again. Just like Christ came and waded into our mess. It could look like daring to go deeper in your conversations this year, moving beyond sports and weather. To find out, who are these relatives of mine? They're my cousin, but yeah, who are they? They're real people with real interests. Seek to find out their interests so that you can put their interests above your own. And what I'm telling you is, that because I believe what the Bible says, I'm telling you, this is the pathway to a better family Christmas. God says do it because it's good for us. This is the way of life. If you want to go up, you go down. So if you want better family Christmases, if you want more interaction that's substantial and meaningful and encouraging, then you need to start by putting their interests above your own and engaging them in love. You may be surprised. You may find yourself enjoying your family like never before. Now over the next three Sundays, we're going to flesh this out some more and look more deeply at the example of Christ and how his example um, empowers us and encourages us to love selflessly. But today I just want to repeat this one thought and leave it less with it today. Jesus didn't just give up his glory, become a man and die on a cross so that we could celebrate the incarnation. We should celebrate it. We should sing songs. We should put up nativities. We should have parties. We should celebrate the incarnation but he also did it so that we could imitate him. We should imitate him by loving others sacrificially, considering their interests more important than our own. That's what God wants for us, and it's good. Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning as one who has the responsibility of speaking these words, but I am receiving them this morning. <laughs> Christmas is hard for me. It is hard for me to not be selfish. It is hard for me to be generous and to sacrifice for others. But Lord, it's easier when I understand what you've done. 
And so I pray for all of us, myself very much included, that you would inspire us, empower us, transform us with your example, that we may be those who not only celebrate the incarnation, but live it out today. Give us eyes to see opportunities to do this and hearts to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.